orphan care is so much more than what people think it is. It's so much more than an orphanage. It's even so much more than foster care. It's about a supportive community that can care for families so when they are in crisis, they can care well for their children. Welcome to the MindShift podcast. I'm Krish Kandaya. Around the world, there are around 5.4 million children in orphanages. Each year, millions of pounds and dollars are sent to support orphanages and thousands of people volunteer or visit them. The best evidence shows that orphanages are not good for children and there are far better ways for vulnerable children to be cared for. A mind shift is needed and that's why this podcast exists. Ellie Oswald is the Executive Director of Faith to Action and she's going to help us think about how we play our part as Christians in encouraging the right kind of volunteering and the right kind of action towards children in orphanages around the world. I'm delighted to be spending some time with Ellie Oswald, the Executive Director of the Faith to Action Initiative. We're going to be talking about family-based care, so could you tell us an enduring memory of your childhood? Well, I'm blessed with an incredible family. There's so many memories to pull from. One of the ones that I think about every week is our Sunday dinner. We'd call our Sunday supper. And after church, we'd have, you know, a light breakfast on the way to church, come home from church, and my mom would spend like an hour and a half getting supper ready. But we were starving, so we were like grabbing things out of the pot and sneaking things out of the fridge while she's like, I'm making roast, stop. (laughs) Um, But when it was all ready, we'd all sit down together. There's four of us kids together. And it's funny, I'm a fast eater, but it's because the best stuff was always gone if you didn't get to it first. My sister will not share French fries with me because she knows they're my favorite and they will be gone. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Sunday dinners um, are a special time. And even now on Sundays, we end up calling and texting each other because it's such a strong memory that we associate after church together. It's very nice. English people would do that as well. A Sunday roast is kind of a bit of a traditional English meal that you would have after church. You stuck the meat in to cook while you're at church. It's quite simple. But I've been thinking that children who grow up in institutional care miss out on those moments of forming a family around food. For many people, food is the place where community is developed. There's something leveling about chewing and cutting up food that it's a great social equaliser, isn't it? And so suddenly you've got different generations sitting around the same table eating together learning from one another doing life together so that's another loss that children in institutional care miss out on yeah and even the food prep right when the food's served to you in a dish and here it's out just what you learn in preparing and understanding where food comes from and how to prepare it and the relationships built around teaching and all of that there are so many as you go through daily life aware of this issue so many things that you recognize are a gift because you were raised in a safe loving family Mm. And that's definitely one of them. We're thinking about a mind shift between rethinking institutional care and helping people move towards family-based care or family reunification. When did the whole area of vulnerable children become a passion of yours? You know, that's a hard question. I think we all look at our life and can pull out things that we didn't realize were happening that have drawn us to the place where we are. I think there's probably a part of me when I was 18, I found out I had polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it was just a kind of a surprise that 
it could be really tough for me to get pregnant. And there was some time that I was mourning that, even though I wasn't trying to get pregnant as an 18-year-old. And I had not recognized that that shaped me until probably like 10 years later. But it did make me more sensitive to thinking about children who are without a safe, loving home outside of parental care. And as I was moving in decisions regarding where my career would go, there were specific moments where I you know, made a choice. And I think that kind of mentality had affected each of those choices. So at one point I wanted to be a lawyer. I'm kind of justice minded. I'm a really high J on whatever that personality test is. Is that the Myers-Briggs? Yes, exactly. But J isn't for justice. It's for judgment. So I see right and wrong, and I wanted to right the wrongs. So I think that my desire to be a lawyer came from that. And as I kind of learned what it would take to be a lawyer and what you know potentially could happen as a lawyer and even the work of the lawyer, I realized that wasn't working out. And so I went quickly to studying religion and nonprofit management, and I'd been involved in kind of volunteering. And eventually uh, stumbled across the work of Bryant Myers and his book that was just coming out then, Walking with the Poor and kind of dreamed about studying under that and eventually was able to do that. He had started working at Fuller Seminary in California and ended up doing my graduate work there and took every single class. I took seven classes with Dr. Myers and really shaped the perspective of how we respond to children and recognizing the fullness of that. I often say now orphan care is so much more than what people think it is. It's so much more than an orphanage. It's even so much more than foster care. It's about a supportive community that can care for families so when they are in crisis, they can care well for their children. So he really shaped my thinking and ultimately was able to work with World Vision, who has an incredible child-focused development approach that I think we all can continue to learn from. And it's interesting that God just has kind of placed me in situations that I've been offered something and I didn't even know that I wanted it, but it clicked so well with my experience and where I was that I knew I had to say yes, along with, you know, the discernment of my husband as well. Is working for World Vision what took you to Seattle? Yes, it is. My family's from there as well, but I was able to work with the child protection team with World Vision International and was in over my head extremely, but learned from some of the world's best child protection experts and was able to just recognize what I didn't know and grow a thirst to know more. And that's where I really started to study the evidence regarding care for children, looking at the continuum of care, what to be cautious of, what to what opportunities there were there and from there God's just been rolling me through it that was 10 years ago wow was there ever a time because uh, it has been the case for many of the people I've spoken to where they thought orphanages were okay and institutional care in general was a reasonable way of caring for children and then they came to an aha moment where that mind shift and suddenly it wasn't can you remember a moment like that for yourself I feel like I'm jealous of people who have that perfect story <laughs> I'm a really, I've always been kind of a critical person. <laughs> so whenever there were things like this, you know, I'm always questioning it. And it works for me sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people don't like to be around me <laughs> because of that. But I actually was early in my career in this conversation around the evidence base and was kind of, it makes sense, right? Like, we actually intuitively understand that children need families. And so I always remember feeling sorrow. Maybe it comes from the fact that I'd always thought maybe I wouldn't be able to have children, or at least at a young age, I thought that. And really realizing how sad that was, that there would be children out there that didn't have family. Mm. Thinking from that perspective has always made me feel sad about the idea of a child in an orphanage. Mm. 
And I actually, I should say this, went on to have two beautiful biological little boys. But I think that piece around what we were talking about, the things that you can miss out when you don't have a family are just that's really been the strongest thing. This is hard work. The thing that has motivated me are the late nights I spend holding my babies Mm. or the moments where I see them scared on the playground and they run back to me. The actual experience of being a parent and being there to be the anchor for my children has just given me the stamina because, you know, this isn't fun. It's hard to go, but it's so worth it. It's fascinating, the idea that children were not to be taken for granted that there might have been a situation where you weren't being able to have your own birth children sensitized you to the idea of children without families and then suddenly that empathy that understanding of what they might be experiencing brings critical questions into the otherwise normally accepted models of care so the bible talks a lot about redemption and the idea that the difficult circumstances that we face and the comfort that we receive from god is a gift that we can then pass on to others and that seems really true for your story. I've spoken to some of the young people who aged out of orphanages and again their experiences have sensitised them and motivated them to get involved in helping other children. So that's fascinating, isn't it, that there's this concept Henry Nouwen talks about, that the wounded healer, Mm -hmm. that those that carry wounds are able to help others and that Mm. we're modelling ourselves on Christ, aren't we, that he's the one that heals but he's the one that's hurt in the process. So Mm -hmm. there's something very beautiful about that. So it sounds like this work is hard, that you've given, you know, so much of your professional life and your personal life to kind of chase after better outcomes for children around the world. Talk to me about some of the challenges that you face. You know, you're constantly trying to advocate for children, speaking with church leaders and denominations and NGOs that might be still in a kind of institutional care model for children. What are some of the biggest challenges for people having that mindset shift to see things differently for kids? I think what's wonderful is that we're working with mostly U.S. Christians. At the end of the day, we all want the same thing. And I don't know if that's true of all audiences, but most Christians want kids to be safe. They want kids to be well cared for. And when we can start from that perspective, I think it's really helpful. But of course, there's challenges as we move through kind of our mindset shifts. And we see some common things, or I've experienced a lot of common things. Um, I think one of them is just overcoming the challenge of, especially people who invested a lot in this work, of a moment to look back and say, maybe I could have done better. That's painful for people. And we can recognize that. I think it doesn't need to be. I think if we look at the concept of atonement, And the fact that we all are moving in our relationship with Christ and that Christ is continually shaping and forming us, I think that that is true in all aspects of our life. God's continuing to refine our efforts and the work that we're doing. And if we think we have it perfect, we're wrong. We won't ever have that perfect. But we can continue to learn. We can continue to encourage each other. And then we know that we, if we're relying on the Lord, that the Lord is really the one doing the work and redeeming things. So we can forgive ourselves. Yeah, I think there is often in a confirmation bias that once you've committed yourself to care for vulnerable children in a certain way and you might have given sacrificially of your money or your time or your ambition and then suddenly that aha moment could unsettle and disrupt a lot of your sense of identity because in many areas you're treated as a hero for caring for children this way and suddenly to have that pulled out from underneath must be very difficult so what kinds of things have you found helpful in 
helping people along. I, I get that we're looking for common ground and we want best outcomes for children. I often am told that it's idealistic or naive to think in many global contexts that this is possible, that of course we don't look after children like that in the West, but you understand it's different in, insert, you know, other country or other continent around the world and it's just not viable it's not possible and so this is just the best we can do for them have you found a way to get around that conversation yeah i think there's a couple of things we've found that are helpful one is starting to talk about the how and knowing the how i think you know those of us who are advocates we need to do more than just know how to advocate we need to know what we're actually calling people to and i would encourage people to recognize that there are hows There are people who've been doing great family-based care. There are people who've been working in countries where foster care didn't exist, and now it's eking out or it's thriving. There are people who say, not these kids. These kids definitely can't go home. I mean, a perfect example is just a few years ago, it was pretty commonly accepted for us to say, well, residential care is probably the best option for kids coming off the streets. And we're seeing success in kids being reintegrated into families and like we never have before. So just recognizing there are incredible practices happening and helping people have access to that information. That's the goal of Faith to Action. We're trying to help people have access to what that actually looks like. The other is sharing some examples and sharing good stories, positive stories of what's happened. And we give people an opportunity to win. Instead of them walking away being told what they're not supposed to do, we get to invite them into a place where they would actually be able to do more than what they're doing. And that helps them recognize that this is a progress. It's not a switching, it's a transforming. And really allowing people to see themselves having a win. Mm. One of the common things for that would be just recognizing how many more children you can serve in the context of foster care or in the context of definitely family reintegration. Mm. You can serve, you know, hundreds of families with the same amount of money that could serve 20 mm. families in residential care. And that feels like a win for people. And it's true. We're not lying. It's a reality. That's really encouraging. I think someone that might be running a relatively small-scale family reunification project or a family-based care project can know that the work they're doing is changing the mindset of other people because a worked example in another context is going to give more evidence, another positive role model that other people can follow. So collecting those stories and then advocating for those stories is also an important role, and I know that's one that, that you guys do. And I think the economic argument is strong as well. We were asked, we went to visit our Department for International Development, and they said, you know, why should we give money to this? Why wouldn't we give money to feeding millions of children instead? This is only a relatively small amount of kids when you can think about all the kids in adversity around the world. And actually, the money goes further. And in some countries, this way of caring for children has been there for hundreds of years. So the 2 to 8 million or 5.6 million, as some are saying, children that are currently in institutional care, that's just a snapshot of this moment. But over time, there's been millions and millions of children. And if we don't change it, there'll be millions and millions more. And the outcomes for the children are so bad that, again, if you fix it now generations and generations of children and families will be use that that's great i think one of the things we're learning as kind of a sector Mm. is that you know individual stories are helpful or even examples of organizations that have made a shift and been really successful but we have to frame it in the larger picture Mm. or else we'll always find ourselves as exceptions Mm. people tend to do that we all do that we want to be the exceptional that sounds bad but that's not me Mm. um unfortunately we can't all be the exceptions (laughs) um so when you can frame it in the concept of like what's the bigger picture 
culture. And I think what you've said is really powerful in doing that. That number, whatever it is between two to eight million children in residential care, that's a number, but you're so right. It's actually a much bigger problem than that. And the knock-on consequences for society are huge. So the money that the government could have been spending and helping society flourish is repairing the damage as well that's happened to kids by being in care the mental health issues, the criminalisation, the homelessness, all of that goes on. So there is a snowball effect, if you like, of not dealing with this problem. You've talked about what kind of keeps you going, your own experiences with your children, the value that you place on your kids because there was a possibility you couldn't have had them in the first place. What would you say to someone who is thinking about entering into this difficult, challenging and in many ways unpopular work because some people look at this as quite a negative thing that we're saying no to all we're saying no to volunteerism where you might go and work in an orphanage over the summer. So a lot of people are nervous about entering this space because it's negative. What would you say to someone who's thinking about becoming an advocate for vulnerable children? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that this issue has been framed so negatively because there's so much beautiful potential. There's so much positive. There's so much good that we can do. And I think we need to do a better job at inviting the church to that bigger picture. Um, The reality is the church is caring for families every single day. And I used to be a pastor. Every day we were dealing with the challenges of the families in our community. And, you know, we were challenging ourselves to think even beyond those in our pews to the families in our neighborhoods. And the church is experts on caring about the family. They recognize that the family is the place that God intended for not only children to be raised, but it's the structure within our society that really grounds us in the calling that God has for us. So I feel like we have so much great stuff to invite people to. And that is about strengthening families, strengthening families so they can care well for their children, but also so they can care well for others as well. And that's a beautiful invitation. Mm -hmm. So we're about inviting people into the opportunity to see children's lives transformed because their family is a safe and secure place. That's right. Let me pick you up on something from the beginning that your study, going to study with Brent Myers and his book, Walking with the Poor, Fuller, was a key moment for you. That's interesting because a lot of people within this space are often quite skeptical about academia, that we're activists, you know, don't confuse me with lots of theology and reflection and evidence. You know, there are kids dying on the streets right now and if we don't get there, that's just terrible. So let's just get out there and do it. And at one level, that's something really positive that there is an activism within much of the Christian church that we don't want to kind of walk on by on the other side of the road when there are people in need. We want to get involved, get our hands dirty at whatever cost to ourselves. So there is that positive element there. So how do you think we can help people have a mind shift when it comes to research, evidence, theology, cultural literacy, social work, development theory, what's that going to take? Well, I think there's responsibility on both sides of that. I think that there's responsibility on those of us who are more engaged on the evidence side, on the best practices side, to make things accessible and to share it and to ground it in real practical realities. And that's actually why I think Bryant Myers was so influential on me is because it wasn't just the stats, it wasn't just the research that had come out, but it was grounded in, I mean, at that point, I'm forgetting what it was called, but there was that huge document that represented those who would be considered the global poor, Mm -hmm. sharing what poor meant to them, and very informed by that perspective. And really, I think there's responsibility on that side to ensure that we're not just using data and numbers, but we know these are real people with real opinions and perspectives that we need to also represent and also recognizing that this information 
can't be so far away that it's not helpful. On the other side, I think as Christians, we know the Spirit guides us and directs us, but we also recognize God's wisdom isn't just poured on ourselves Mm -hmm. and that there are so many things that we can learn from and we can be open to understanding. And I come from Seattle, so sometimes this feels like a non-issue because we're very progressive and liberal in Seattle. But as I work more and more with other churches, I recognize that we have kind of said God only exists in our churches or amongst Christians, not recognizing the fullness of God in the entire world Mm -hmm. and that God is actually able to exist and to do things outside of our own communities. And I do see hope. I think that mentality is is being shattered as we continue to be more and more connected with each other around the world to be able to have relationships with people very different from ourselves. I think young people growing up are not thinking that way. So there's a lot of hope. But Mm. again, I think there's responsibility on both sides. Faith to Action tries to be a bridge connecting the two because sometimes it's just a matter of language. We don't speak each other's language. I feel like there are different tribes within the Christian church and one of the tribes has anti-intellectualist bent that there's a fear of the academia. Someone told me the other day, my church don't want me to go to seminary because they're worried that seminary will kill me and it will destroy my faith and it will stop me from being spontaneous and available to the spirit. So we're setting the spirit up against the mind. And so within the anti-intellectual traditions, I think we need to be able to say, hold on, you know, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind. That's an integrated whole. Some of the language within other traditions where we might recognize that all truth is God's truth or within the kind of Abraham Kuyper's tradition where, you know, there isn't a square inch of this planet over which God doesn't claim this is mine. So that includes the academy, you know. Mm -hmm. So in some circles, it's an apologetic for the mind. In other circles, the other tribes are all about the mind. And we love our study and we love our Bible and we love exposition. But the application of that and the activism is missing. And so I think it's good that you talk about this need to work across denominations and across generations and across geographical locations. Because we can be, if we're humble enough, open to hear the critique, the challenge, the encouragement from people that are not like us. Yeah, I think that is vital. I think, Chris, you know that I care about breaking down some of those barriers and building relationships. And and in order to be working together or even just to be in the same room, we have to let go of some of our self to experience another. And that, I think, is a practice we need to refine in many areas in our Christian world, but especially when it comes to coming together to respond to the needs of children in our world, we have to be able to listen and learn from each other. As you're you know, kind of describing these two sides as you see it, in my experience, there's always a place that we can find mm-hmm. common ground, mm-hmm. and we can work from there. It doesn't need to be a battle. We can find our common ground and share our perspectives, but listening, learning from each other, we won't make any progress if we're not able to do that i think that's been one of the themes as i've spoken to various people about this that a mind shift happens when we have a spirit of humility about us that we're willing to listen to the voice of the child what does a child in an orphanage actually want not what do i think is best for them but what do they actually want how can i listen to that voice listening to the voice of the other whether that's the activist or the intellectual whether it's the voice of the care lever the person from the different context to me whether that's theological or geographical humility seems to be the way 
we can possibly have a mind shift while arrogance means we're less likely to be able to be open to the spirit and open to god redirecting us ellie i've asked everybody in this podcast if there's anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that's a kind of burning issue for you that really needs to be out there is there something you were hoping we would talk about that we haven't yet i appreciate your willingness to have these conversations i think that i'm really kind of struck by what we were just talking about regarding humility it's actually pretty popular things to talk about (laughs) and we kind of all nod our heads and agree but unfortunately we still are all broken right and this is just silly but it's every day we have to pray for that humility and often it's those of us who talk about it the most that forget that we actually need to think about it every day and not assume oh yeah you know i'm on your humility train let's let's do that and here's the thing it also means we can still have disagreements we can still work through things but we want to genuinely listen to each other and we need to be able to know when we can see it and say you know what i'm gonna let you have that one i think that's the only way we can collaborate as well not only learn from each other but collaborate with each other so yeah there's humility in the way we're sharing and learning in the dialogue about what's best for kids and then i think there's also humility in the need for us to collaborate and be able to overcome you know these huge challenges these huge global challenges and know i have something to learn from you krish and krish you have something to learn from me and and neither of us actually even know what those things are until we're in relationship so yeah that's that's really helpful that's one of the things i really value about the way that you work ellie that you are passionate about collaboration but it's not a cheap surface collaboration you are willing to ask the difficult questions call out difficult behaviors and learn as well and that's a rare combination often people that want to challenge just want things done their way and often people that want to collaborate just want to paper over the cracks and pretend there's no difference and i think you stuck a really good balance for that so i can see how god's called you for such a time as this for the role that you're playing so it's it's been great to be able to collaborate with you I was impressed by Ellie's ability to find common ground when talking with people that she radically disagrees with. We've lost that art in our politics, haven't we? We've become so polarised it's impossible to find common ground. Common ground is seen to be somehow a compromise. But when it comes to this issue of, again, well-meaning Christians seeking to make a difference in the world, we must make sure that we take that energy and that enthusiasm and that good desire and translate it into something positive. And Ellie's given us a lot of food for thought about how we actually do that. If you want to further your journey in discovering how you can play your part in making sure that the five million children in orphanages around the world get the care and attention they need, go to the homecomingproject.org and join our learning journey and we'll equip you and motivate you to make sure that every child gets the loving home that they need tune in again soon for the next edition of the mind shift podcast